welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Nutrition Genome. This is the most comprehensive genetic analysis on the market. They cover 85 plus clinically relevant genes across all of the major biochemical pathways. And what that means is they're testing all the important things that can actually make an epigenetic difference for you. The test also includes a 50 plus page report that really goes in depth and gives feedback on your personal gene function and how to enhance your own gene expression. The analysis also provides foods that are best to emphasize and minimize, talks about toxins you're more likely to be sensitive to, your genetic stress response, and even recommended blood work to optimize your genetic blueprint for long-lasting health and longevity. This testing doesn't have the privacy concerns that some of the other popular genetic tests have, and we just did this with all of our children. The results have been really helpful for customizing their diets and supplements, and basically for our whole family. I kind of took everybody's results and find, found the common denominators of food, and we start there now with our shopping list each week. You can check it out and learn more and get the test at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash nutrition dash genome. That will also be in the podcast show notes at wellnessmama.fm for this episode. But one more time, that's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash nutrition dash genome, G-E-N-O-M-E. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. My kitchen is always stocked with their coffee mushroom blends, their matcha mix, and their straight mushroom drinks. Four Sigmatic has figured out how to get the benefits of mushrooms like chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps, and reishi into delicious instant drinks. My current favorite is their their adaptogen coffee blend that has Tulsi and astragalus, but I love all of their products. They have options with or without caffeine, so if you're not a caffeine person, you can find products that you'll love. Um, And I find that even their coffee blends that do contain caffeine have less than a normal cup of coffee, but don't let this fool you. I have found I get so much more focus and mental clarity from these mushroom blends than I do from regular coffee and without the jitters. The addition of the mushrooms, which are considered nootropics, meaning that they are good for the brain, makes these superfood blends more effective and much healthier than just regular old coffee. I love them with a dash of macadamia milk personally. I also love that many of their drink mixes are instant and packaged into individual servings, so they're perfect for travel or on the go. If you're listening to this, then you can get a special offer just for listeners of this podcast by going to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash f-o-u-r dash s-i-g-m-a-t-i-c that's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash four dash sigmatic hello and welcome to the healthy moms podcast i'm katie from wellnessmama.com and i am here today with someone who i have been looking forward to talking to for a long time dr mark hyman is a practicing family physician a 10-time new york times best-selling author an international internationally recognized speaker educator and advocate in the field of functional medicine and on top of that he um essentially is the medical director at the cleveland clinic for functional medicine he's the founder and director of the ultra wellness center chairman of the institute for functional medicine the medical editor for the huffington post and a regular med- medical contributor on CBS This Morning, Good Morning America, CNN, The Dr. Oz Show, and many more. So Dr. Hyman, your new book is Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? And I love this because I feel like there's so much health information that nobody actually knows what they're supposed to actually practically eat anymore. And there's so much conflicting research out there and different dietary philosophies. So let's start at the beginning. Why are we all so confused with this? Why, where's all this coming from? It's no wonder that we're confused, right? Because we have one co- complicated science to interpret around nutrition 
that's hard to do. We can't do studies where we take 10,000 people, lock them up for 30 years, give them a diet, another 10,000 different diet, follow what happens, right? Put half of them on paleo, half of them on vegan diet, see what happens after 30 years. Then it's going to happen. That's just not going to happen. So we have to go through other smaller studies. We have to actually look at studies that are, you know, population studies, but there's inherent problems with those, right? We can't prove cause and effect by correlating various patterns in diet, which is what we do. We have people fill out a questionnaire every year and we see what happens. The problem is that that is uh, notoriously risky to do because you're drawing conclusions from things where you can't prove cause and effect. For example, every day the sun comes up and you wake up. It doesn't mean they're they're actually related, but it, there's a 100% correlation, right? So I think that's really that's really the issue is that we have you know incomplete science. The second thing is that you know the media is always looking for the latest fancy headlines and eggs are good, eggs are bad, coconut oil is good, coconut oil is bad. So they're trying to sell clicks and ads, and it's just it's unfortunate because they contribute to the confusion. And then you know we have dietary policies that are completely disconnected from science, which confuses even more because that's what the government tells us. And we have scientists who are still looking at very outdated science, for example, that all calories are the same, that fat's bad, and we end up in you know, really confused state. So the whole idea of my book, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat, is to take the science, to review it all. I've been doing this for 40 years. Sad to say I'm that old. Uh, but I've been studying nutrition for 40 years and I've been applying it in medical practice for over 30 years. And looking at all the research, thousands and thousands of papers I've read, synthesizing it into just really simple, practical principles that answers all the questions and controversies that people have about nutrition. I love that. I cannot wait to read it. And I'd love to talk a little bit about food politics too, because I know you've done research here as well. And I get a lot of comments from readers who essentially think that really the government has our best interest at heart. And they're like, no, this is against the government's recommendations. So how do our current food policies kind of support this confusion and this this system we have? <laughs> the government, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So they're often making conflicting advice. So a lot of our dietary policies are driven off of the dietary guidelines, and uh, they're a little bit corrupt. Uh, and the National Academy of Sciences was mandated by Congress to actually review how the guidelines were developed. And they put a report out in, I think, this October, November, which is online. You can look it up. Just type in National Academy of Sciences dietary guidelines. And they basically, when you sift through it all, basically said, look, the committee members are in cahoots with food industry. They're getting paid by them. They're not exactly independent science-based recommendations. And the second they said was they ignored huge amounts of data on things that, that contradict what their guidelines are. For example, on saturated fat, they completely contradict themselves. So it's very difficult for the average person to understand what to eat if even our own government is not providing science-based guidelines. The second thing is that a lot of our policies are at odds with each other. On one hand, you know, we tell people to cut back on sugar. And on the other hand, we're paying uh, for commodities to be produced like corn syrup and wheat flour and soybean oil through our subsidies that are turned into junk food, which then we pay for with food stamp programs, which, you know, $7 billion worth is basically spent on soda. That's 20 billion servings a year for the poor that the government's paying for. And on the back end, we're paying for Medicare and Medicaid. So we literally, the taxpayers pay three times to support the food industry from the consequences of their food, to grow it, to provide it to the poor, and then to pay for the 
disease that's caused in the back end. And then the food labels are so confusing because the food industry is all up in the FDA and can't just have simple labels like this is good for you, this is bad for you, like stoplight like they have in many other countries. It's so complicated. Uh, and, and the policies, for example, in, in um, you know, food marketing to kids, we allow the most awful food to be marketed to kids. You know? and, then the, and then on top of that, all of our public health organizations that are supposed to be protecting us, like the American Heart Association and Diabetic Association, the Nutrition and Dietetic Association, these are all funded by the food industry. If you just look at follow the money, you'll see there's enormous amounts of money paid to these groups. Why is Trix cereal a heart healthy cereal when it has almost seven teaspoons of sugar in it? Because it's low fat. <laughs> it has three different kinds of dye in it. I, it's, it's this is not a health food, and yet the, the American Heart Association puts a seal of approval right on there. So I think we have. You know, public health agencies that are corrupting it. I think the science is corrupt because food industry funds science. So if Coca-Cola funds a study in obesity, guess what? <laughs> it's going to show that soda has nothing to do with obesity. Uh, and we know that studies funded by the food industry are 8 to 50 times more likely to show a positive benefit for their product. So we, we have confused science. We have confused public health organizations are corrupt. We have confused policies. And all of that is is making it very difficult for people to know what to eat and, and and how to take care of themselves and actually not only that but take care of the the bigger context in which we live. I mean, food is connected to everything. Food, our food system is the number one cause of climate change. The way we factory farm animals is cruel to them. It destroys the environment. It's bad for us and contributes to climate change. Uh, we 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 have uh, educational disparities because kids are eating junk food and can't focus in school. We have economic stress in the country because Medicare and Medicaid are, are buckling under the weight of chronic disease, and soon it'll take up our entire federal budget. And you know we're we're just you know seeing all these factors that are related to our food system, and nobody's sort of putting the whole story together. And that's really what I tried to do in my book, Food: What the Heck Should I Just Put the Story Together. And, and help you not only, you know, understand the context of food, but also actually to give you an exact guide on what you should eat in each category. If you want to eat meat, is it okay? If, is it not? What kind of meat should you be? What about dairy? Yes or no? Should it be goat or sheep? And what are the problems of dairy? Same thing with grains. Are grains bad or good? What kind of grains should you eat and why? And I go through really, really practical, practical information on all of this. Yeah, I love it. And I 100% agree with everything you just said. And I, one thing I just want to echo is with the kids and having specific foods marketed towards kids. That's a big soapbox for me and an issue I talk about a lot because kids are capable of eating real food just like grownups are. And it makes me crazy that all the kids menus assume that kids will only eat like fried chicken nuggets and french fries. Well, there's no such thing as kids menus in most countries. In Japan, kids eat Japanese food and raw fish. In Indonesia, they eat Indonesian food, right? In Mongolia, they eat Mongolian food. They don't have a kid's menu. Uh, and in, in fact, in Chile, there's an extraordinary new initiative happening because the doctor, who's a pediatrician, is the president. And the vice president of the Senate is also a doctor. And they passed sweeping legislation where they got rid of all the cartoon characters on all the kids' packaging. So there's no more Tony the Tiger on Frosted Flakes. And they have frontal label warnings just like cigarettes on the front of the package saying it's bad for you. And they prohibited any advertising uh, in TV, radio, or in movie theaters for any junk food. And they got rid of all the junk food in schools. And they taxed sodas 18%. So they have massive sweeping changes. It's the kind of stuff that we just never get done here. Because, you know, for example, just on the farm bill alone, there's 500 
million dollars. That's half a billion dollars spent by lobbyists, 600 lobbyists for this one bill. That's almost, you know, almost two to one ratio of lobbyists to congressmen to uh, actually influence these policies that, that end up being really, really corrupt. Wow, that's amazing and good for them for making those changes. And I think that's a great place to start because I want to go through some of the specifics and get your opinion and your answers to them. And first of all, I want to start with sugar because I don't think anyone would consider it a health food, but there's definitely people are on the spectrum of how bad they think it is. And I've taken a lot of flack in the past for saying that there's no biological need for sugar and that really there's no reason we need to consume it. And people get mad at me and say, no, that's not balanced and kids should have treats and it's fine. But you are one of the top experts on this. You have researched it and written about it in depth. So can you bring clarity to the sugar issue? You. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you said something very important. We have no biological need for carbohydrates. Uh, our bodies run perfectly well without them. Um, if we don't eat protein, we get protein deficiency and amino acid deficiency because we need them from our diet. If we don't eat fats, we get essential fatty acid deficiency. But there's no such thing as a carbohydrate deficiency. So humans don't need to eat them. Now, they're fun to eat and they're delicious and they can be part of our diet. But it's important to understand that. And the second thing is, it's the dose that makes the poison. You know, that's what Paracelsus said. We have enormous quantities of flour and sugar. And flour, by the way, has a higher glycemic index than sugar, than table sugar. So flour, you know, if you have two slices of bread, it's like having two tablespoons or worse of two tablespoons of table sugar. So you might as well just put the sugar on your sandwich fixings and be better off. So we have no biological need for it, and we eat 152 pounds per person of sugar and 133 pounds of flour. That's an enormous amount. These are pharmacologic doses. It's in everything. It's in our breakfast cereal. It's in ketchup. It's in salad dressing. It's in pretty much everything. Uh, why, why is there more sugar in pasta sauce than there is in Oreo cookies? I mean, <laughs> so I think we, we really have gone overboard on this. And as a recreational drug, it's fine. Having a little sugar or sweet once in a while is fine. It's like having a shot of tequila. But you don't want to have a, you know, a liter of tequila every day. That's going to kill you. And the same thing with sugar. It's the biggest cause of every known major chronic disease from heart disease to diabetes to cancer to obesity, uh, to even dementia, even uh, so it's really, really powerful, and we really uh, need to understand it as a as a recreational drug and not as a staple. Yeah, I love that comparison. And same with alcohol. That's a great comparison. There can be a time and a place to indulge in moderation, but you have to think of it that way and not as a staple of your diet, which it is for so many Americans. Like it's a food group essentially for a lot of people. Um, what about meat? Because if, obviously you know the research. Meat's gotten such a bad rap, and some of my most vocal commenters are vegetarians and vegans insisting that all meat is not only cruel but bad for us and that it causes cancer and diabetes and contributes to climate change. So what does the research actually say about the health and environmental effects? Absolutely. It's great. I I, uh, I was going to write a blog about how to reverse climate change is called reversing climate change eat meat <laughs> and, and i think uh you know as a provocative statement i want to explain it but essentially i i want to be 120 i don't want to eat meat if it's going to kill me uh and if it's bad for me so i decided i was going to not listen to all the headlines but i was going to lock myself away for a week in a room with a pile of the best research papers on meat and I was going to read them and I was going to look at the fine print and what actually they say and what they don't. And as a scientist and doctor, I, I have the ability to do that. And I realized there were really three issues. One was moral. Now, if you are morally against killing animals, I mean, the Jane 
uh, the Hindu, they won't step on an insect. I mean, I'm a Buddhist, same thing. Like, that's a, a religious moral choice, and everybody's entitled to that. And I would support that 100%. The second is, um, is environmental, and it's real. So the way we raise animals is harmful to them, to us, and to the environment. And both in terms of the amount of pesticides and herbicides, uh, in terms of the runoff of the nitrogen fertilizers and waterways that's destroying our our ecosystems and waterways. We have a dead zone the size of New Jersey and the Gulf of Mexico because of the way we do factory farming. And of course, it's cruel and inhumane, plus they pump them full of hormones, antibiotics, plus they feed them corn and soy, which they're not meant to eat, which then changes the quality of the meat and has deleterious effects on us. So all that's true. But what we don't talk about is that actually how we raise the beef matters. There were 60 million buffalo in America uh, (laughs) in the 1800s. We killed them all off. But they were grazing and and they were eating grass and they were um, not contributing to climate change. In fact, they were helping reverse climate change by creating soil. There were 20, I think there's 20 plus feet of topsoil in the Midwest when, when, when we first started settling it. Now there's, it's, you know, a few inches. It's pretty bad because we've created huge soil erosion in the way we farm by tilling and the way we do animal husbandry. But it turns out that there's a whole sort of research field called regenerative agriculture, which has shown that we can actually, by proper grazing and you know, basically grass-fed meat, it's better for the animals. The quality of the meat is far better for us for many reasons, including the kinds of fats that are in there and the nutrients that are in there. But more importantly, that it helps to build soil, which is a big problem. We've lost 1.1 billion acres of arable land to desert uh, over the last decades because of how we farm and because of uh, the factory farming of animals and, and all of these things. So by using traditional grazing practices, moving animals around, we build soil just like the buffalo did. And that actually creates the ability to sequester carbon in the soil. And if we did this at scale, it would literally bring us back to pre-industrial time of carbon in the environment. The problem with the way we're doing it now is we deplete soil. Even organic agriculture, if you're eating organic vegetables, you're still contributing to climate change because you're tilling the soil, which then causes soil erosion. And the soil can't actually hold um, the carbon and it can't actually hold the water. That's why we're seeing droughts and floods and all these weird weather patterns because of we're not actually taking care of the soil. So it turns out animals are a critical part of the cycle. And if we don't use them, we're not going to be able to reverse climate change. So that's sort of what I meant by, you know, reverse climate change, eat meat, but it has to be grass fed. And there's much research on this. Then there's the health issues and the health issues are real. Uh, I think what, what does meat do? Is it bad for us? Well, here's the deal. We have data from observational studies. Now, observational studies are basically where they give thousands of people a questionnaire every year. What did you eat? What did you eat? What did you eat? And then they follow their health for a long period of time and they see what they died of or what they got sick from. And then they correlate it. Now, many of these studies are hard to do, but what what we can see from these studies like the national institute of health arp study was that there was an increase in risk of of uh, diabetes and heart disease and cancer with those who ate a lot of meat in that study but you have to take into account how the studies were done and when they were done they were done in a period where everybody thought meat was bad so if you ate meat you didn't care about your health and when you look at the characteristics of the meat eaters in those studies 
it was true. They were more overweight. They ate and there were more calories a day. They didn't eat fruits and vegetables. They drank more. They smoked more. They didn't exercise. They didn't eat fruits and veggies. They didn't take their supplements. Of course, they had more disease. When you look at studies, for example, where they compared 11,000 meat eaters and vegetarians who shopped at health food stores, both had their risk reduced in half because they were eating meat in the context of a healthy diet. And many, many other studies contradicted. And the effect isn't that great. So, for example, when you look at it at an effect size for those studies, observational studies, it should be like smoking. Smoking was like 20 to 1 or 10 to 1, meaning a 1,000 or 2,000 percent increase in the risk, which is a pretty strong correlation. The studies we see around meat are like 20 percent. So the recent one on cancer and colon cancer said the risk increased on processed meat, not regular meat, but processed meat like bacon from 5% background risk to 6% risk. So it's a 1% absolute increase in risk. The way they phrase it, it's a 20% reduction in risk if you don't eat processed meat. That sounds great. But the truth is it's actually a 1% absolute reduction. And it's only if you're eating four pieces of bacon every day your whole life, then you have a 1% risk. So they kind of, <laughs> the statistics are challenging. And a 20% correlation in an observational study is not very impressive. Um, so that's the challenge. And when you look at interventional studies using meat, uh, they, they, like for example, paleo studies, you can reverse diabetes. It's very impressive. Uh, and, the, and the numbers get better, muscle mass increases, the cholesterol improves. Uh, so I think, I think, from my view, looking at the fact that we've been eating meat for since we evolved, this has been a huge part of our diet. When you look at the, the, the centenarians um, uh, at the turn of the century, that had the most centenarians were the Plains Indians. They, they basically lived on buffalo almost entirely, and they lived to have the highest rates of 100-year-old people on the planet. So yes, you know, you can look at all the data and you can make any argument you want, and there are countries and societies that live more on beans and they do fine, but it's really in the context of an overall healthy diet. So in my view, after looking at all the research, you know, and I go through this in depth in the book, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? I do not think meat is the problem. It's the way we eat it. It's it's not the uh, the meat itself. It's the fact we farm meat and we should be eating grass fed. It's more expensive for sure, but there are ways that I talked about in the book to get it cheaper. There's online distributors that cut out the middleman. There's ways you can buy a cow share where you, you join up with a bunch of people and they send you, you know, frozen, frozen uh, grass-fed cows for your freezer that you combine with other people so it's cheaper. So there's a lot of ways to do it that are not uh, going to break the bank. And I think it's important that we sort of realize what the truth is about this and, and get into the real an analysis of the de details. So I, I, I really think it's an area that – and I also wrote about this in Eat Fat, Get Thin. Uh, I wrote about it here, and, and I think uh, you know we, we need to kind of move on from this this view. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And hopefully it seems to be more mainstream now that nobody thinks processed meat's healthy for you. And it seems to be that's the key, eating meat as part of a healthy diet, lots of vegetables, moderate amounts of meat, and making sure it's sourced well. And that's, I think, I think that's the key. And definitely I'll make sure we link to your book so you can find that. I feel like the other issue that goes hand in hand here is the cholesterol issue. Because I have relatives, older relatives, who still avoid meat and eggs and so many things because of the cholesterol because it was so bad. But from what I know, the latest guidelines actually overturned some of the cholesterol recommendations. Is that right? And how did that happen? And what are the actual current recommendations now for cholesterol? Well, there's two things. One is dietary cholesterol. There's blood cholesterol. So it turns out that this is a complicated story as well. And I, I talk about this whole fat issue. First of all, the government in 2015, even though the guidelines are a little bit corrupt, they couldn't avoid the fact that there was no data that dietary cholesterol is a problem or the total fat's a problem. 
So they reversed 35 years of bad advice saying we should limit our dietary cholesterol and, <laughs> and actually said dietary cholesterol is no longer a nutritive concern. So we don't have to worry about egg white omelets anymore or anything like that. The second thing they said is total fat's not a problem. They still say saturated fat's an issue, and I think that's going to change in the next dietary guidelines because they were called out for ignoring huge amounts of data around this. In terms of blood cholesterol, turns out that guess what raises your blood cholesterol? It's actually, it makes you have a cholesterol that's the bad kind, which is uh, we call atherogenic cholesterol, which is the kind that causes heart disease, which is small particles, low HDL, high triglycerides. It's not fat that causes it, it's sugar. And we literally have a cholesterol production factory in our liver that is stimulated by the increase in carbohydrate and sugar in our diet. So this is really a critical aspect of, of biology. This is just basic biochemistry. You can read any physiology biochemistry textbook. When you eat starch and sugar, there's a process called lipogenesis that turns on in the liver that ends up producing the wrong kinds of cholesterol. And as you look at the research, it's sugar, not fat, that's causing heart disease, that's causing diabetes, that's causing cancer, that's causing dementia. And so when you're trying to fix your cholesterol, the best thing is to actually eat more fat and to eat less carbs. Now, certain types of fat, like saturated fat, some people may have issues with. They may actually need to eat less saturated fat genetically. But for most of us, eating saturated fat improves the quality of our cholesterol. And, and if you look at these large studies, uh, there's a pure study, which was, just came out recently. It was, a, I think, 135,000 people, 18 countries, five continents, um, found over a long period of time that those who ate animal protein and fat had far less heart disease and disease than, than those who had cereal grains. Uh, another huge study, 42-country study looking at food consumption patterns in 42 countries over many years found that people who ate animal fat and protein had far less cardiovascular disease than people who ate cereal grains and potatoes. Another study, 245,000 people looking at vegans, vegetarians, and omnivores found no difference in their outcomes. So we just have to look at the weight of the evidence here. And I think that this is really the important thing to understand, that it's not the numbers, the absolute numbers of cholesterol, it's actually what quality they are. And the quality of your cholesterol gets better eating the right fats and gets worse eating starch and sugar. And we've got focused on LDL cholesterol because of the statin drug, which is, treats that, but that's not the be-all and end-all. It's really, you know, 75% of people who walk into the emergency room with a heart attack have normal LDL cholesterol, and not because they're taking a statin. So we have to kind of rethink this a little bit and, and review it. And I, I do talk about all this in my book, uh, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? So it's, it's confusing, but it's, it's so easy to sort through once you understand the biology of it. That makes sense. And yeah, I've even seen some of the data that for women, at least like higher cholesterol was correlated again, not causation, but correlated with a longer lifespan. So I'm glad that we're looking at this again and not just assuming all cholesterol is bad cholesterol at this point. This podcast is brought to you by Nutrition Genome. This is the most comprehensive genetic analysis on the market. They cover 85 plus clinically relevant genes across all of the major biochemical pathways. And what that means is they're testing all the important things that can actually make an epigenetic difference for you. They, the test also includes a 50 plus page report that really goes in depth and gives feedback on your personal gene function and how to enhance your own gene expression. 
The analysis also provides foods that are best to emphasize and minimize, talks about toxins you're more likely to be sensitive to, your genetic stress response, and even recommended blood work to optimize your genetic blueprint for long-lasting health and longevity. This testing doesn't have the privacy concerns that some of the other popular genetic tests have, and we just did this with all of our children. The results have been really helpful for customizing their diets and supplements, and basically for our whole family. I kind of took everybody's results and find, found the common denominator of food and we start there now with our shopping list each week you can check it out and learn more and get the test at wellnesswama.com forward slash go forward slash nutrition dash genome that will also be in the podcast show notes at wellnesswama.fm for this episode but one more time that's wellnesswama.com forward slash go forward slash nutrition dash genome g-e-n-o-m-e this podcast is brought to you by four sigmatic My kitchen is always stocked with their coffee mushroom blends, their matcha mix, and their straight mushroom drinks. Four Sigmatic has figured out how to get the benefits of mushrooms like chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps, and reishi into delicious instant drinks. My current favorite is their their adaptogen coffee blend that has Tulsi and astragalus, but I love all of their products. They have options with or without caffeine, so if you're not a caffeine person, you can find products that you'll love. Um, And I find that even their coffee blends that do contain caffeine have less than a normal cup of coffee, but don't let this fool you. I have found I get so much more focus and mental clarity from these mushroom blends than I do from regular coffee and without the jitters. The addition of the mushrooms, which are considered nootropics, meaning that they are good for the brain, makes these superfood blends more effective and much healthier than just regular old coffee. I love them with a dash of macadamia milk personally. I also love that many of their drink mixes are instant and packaged into individual servings, so they're perfect for travel or on the go. If you're listening to this, then you can get a special offer just for listeners of this podcast by going to wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash f-o-u-r dash s-i-g-m-a-t-i-c that's wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash four dash sigmatic another thing that i get a lot of questions about and i'm really curious your take is the whole paleo idea of we should avoid avoid grains and beans and eat more like our ancestors did apparently um and i'd love to hear what you think on this and where you fall because i know i do feel better when I avoid certain things. Um, and that is my own dietary variation. Like you mentioned with cholesterol, like I have the FTO gene. So I'm one of the ones that has to avoid um, large amounts of saturated fat, ironically, um, because I think saturated fats are healthy for you. But I'm curious, so where do you fall on the grains and beans issue? Well, I think it's individual. First of all, it's like, what grains are we eating? You know, what beans are we eating? And I think, you know, we recently just started eating these about 10,000 years ago with the agricultural revolution. Uh, we never had these before, so they're kind of new. And, and when you look at some of the archaeological records, we do see that uh, the structure, skull structure and other things change and our brain changes when we switch from hunting and gathering to eating uh, you know, monocrops and grains. And we used to eat 800 species of plants as hunter-gatherers. So there's that. And then the second thing is that for some people, they can be a problem. And and we had whole grains. We had heirloom grains for millennia. And then all of a sudden in the 1800s, we started to refine grains. We started to mill them. And then we started to feed them to prisoners and chickens even. And they were all getting sick because they were all so nutritionally deficient from having these refined grains like refined rice or refined flour. Now we each consume about 133 pounds of flour a year. And it's mostly from wheat, and it's 
mostly from dwarf weed, which is a problematic because it, ha it has a super starch in it called amylopectin A, which raises your blood sugar more than table sugar. It has much higher levels of gliadin proteins, which are super inflammatory, lead to much more um, issues around celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. Uh, and uh, they're also sprayed with glyphosate, which is at the end of their cycle, which is a powerful herbicide called Roundup that is left on the plants, and we consume that, which is harmful to us. And lastly, once the flower is milled, they put in calcium propionate, which is a preservative that really turns out to be a neurotoxin, and in animal models can create autism by uh, creating this neurotoxic effect. So for many reasons, eating the wheat we eat in this country is pretty bad. Uh, Non-GMO wheat, heirloom wheat, you know, non-preserved you know, wheat in the way that we preserve it, those can be okay um, for some people. They can probably tolerate rye. They can tolerate barley. They might be able to tolerate einkorn wheat. I, I don't think we should be eating a lot of the modern wheat, to tell you the truth. And I think that that's really the main grain people eat, pasta, bread, cereals, baked goods. And, and that's really a huge issue. Now, there are other grains that can be part of a diet and still be healthful. Things like teff and amaranth and quinoa and buckwheat, uh, black rice, one of my favorite. Uh, these are all ancient grains. Some of them are non-grains. Wild rice is a seed, for example. So we can consume these. Again, if you're diabetic, if you're overweight, it, which is 70% of Americans, if you have gut issues, if you have autoimmune issues, you might not tolerate it as well. Uh, as far as beans go, again, so it's personalized. As far as beans go, I think, you know, beans are okay, but they do have some issues. And a lot of people have digestive struggles with them. They can cause fermentation and overgrowth of bacteria. And, you know, we, we say they're the best source of, of plant protein, which is true, but, you know, you have to eat three cups of beans to equal one six-ounce piece of chicken or steak or, or salmon. Uh, that's a lot of beans. <laughs> and the truth is, as we get older, we need more and more protein in order to maintain our muscle mass. And we lose muscle mass, we age fast. We get weak and we get all these chronic diseases that come with low muscle mass like diabetes and heart disease and cancer. So I think it's important that we, we actually look intelligently at what we should be eating. Yeah, that seems like a really balanced approach. And I think you're so right that there's a big difference between eating like a whole grain like oatmeal or rice versus most people when they say they want to eat grains, it's really just processed flour most of the time. Um, what about dairy? Because that's another one that seems to be problematic. I get a lot of moms writing in with kids having reactions to dairy or their faces getting red or getting rashes. Um, but the guidelines currently, I think, still recommend a couple glasses of milk a day for kids. So what's the truth about dairy these days? Well, the dairy we eat isn't dairy we ate. You know, I think there are there are populations that live on dairy, like the Maasai, but these are you know grass-fed cows. They're heirloom cows. They're not the way we have them now. So, dairy is something that is unusual for for animals to consume after weaning. We're the only animal that consumes dairy after weaning. Now, the problem is that the dairy we're eating is is also a huge issue. It's mostly cow dairy. It comes from hybridized cows that have high levels of something called A1 casein, which is super inflammatory, has been linked to everything from cancer to osteoporosis to digestive disorders to autoimmune disease um, to even skim, skim milk causes weight gain, believe it or not, because <laughs> you're hungry because there's no fat. Uh, so there's not... There's a lot of data that questions the benefits of, of humans consuming milk. And a lot of people get ear infections and eczema and allergies and all sorts of stuff from it. And it's real. Um, now, the A1 casein is bad. A2 casein from, for example, goats may not be as bad. It might be better tolerated. 
if you're eating dairy, it should be grass-fed and not grass-finished, but grass-fed. And there's not that much out there. Uh, grass-fed butter may be okay. It's the, not the fat that's the problem in it. It's more of the the casing that can be a problem in the way. Uh, if you if you want to get none, you can eat ghee, which is a, a form of dairy that has no casing or, or whey in it. It's just the it's just the actual fat, which is sort of clarified butter. Um, but I, I I'm not a big fan of dairy. I think there's there's you know there's a lot a lot of recommendations that we eat it. They're supposed to have three glasses of milk a day according to the uh, government. The problem is that there's no evidence for that. And the, two of the top nutritionists in the world at Harvard, Will, Dr. Willett and Dr. Ludwig, wrote an editorial saying, you know, where's the proof? You know, three glasses of milk a day. There's no evidence for that. And this is part of why the uh, the National Academy of Sciences came down hard on the Dietary Guidelines Committee because they because they say we should eat three glasses of milk a day, and there's no evidence. So I think um, I'm not a big fan of dairy. I think I think some can be okay. I think if you're going to have it, it should be sheep or goat. Should be grass fed. It should be, you know, the fats are fine. It's not low fat. We should be eating. It's problematic. And I think, um, you know, again, I write a lot about this in my book, Food. What the heck should I eat? But there's, there's, you know, the issues around dairy farming. I mean, this is, is a whole series of issues. But bottom line, I don't think we should be consuming much dairy. It contributes to a lot of issues. Uh, some people can tolerate some amounts of it, but uh, stick with grass fed or sheep or goat. Yeah, that seems like an area where there's definitely some lobbying dollars behind it as well, because I definitely see a lot of commercials for, you know, cheese and dairy and got milk and all that stuff. Well, you know, this was a problem is how this started was that this wasn't really a recommendation for eating dairy in the first dietary guidelines in 1980. And the Dairy Council got furious and they lobbied the government and they formed this dairy promotion, National Dairy Promotion Board, which was the government funded, taxpayer funded promotion for dairy so all the got milk ads guess who paid for those <laughs> it was us oh wow <laughs> and, you know yeah and so a lot of the propaganda around dairy and the ads actually come from taxpayer money so uh it's it's a huge problem and i think we don't we don't understand why we're seeing so much of it but it's really it's really so corrupt that's crazy and i, I know that became its own like food group in the original food pyramid the whole dairy and I, I know a lot of people who still think eggs are actually dairy because they ended up in the same part of the food group as the dairy on the original food pyramid, which is crazy. So another question I wanted to make sure I asked you because I get a lot of questions and these are super popular right now, all the smoothie diets and juicing diets and juicing cleanses that are also popular. Um, do you see a time and a place for these? And are there any concerns with like, for instance, just consuming juices? Uh, for sure. I mean, dairy, dairy is one topic, but you know, people think, oh, I'm going to have green juices, but you know, two of the biggest companies that are out there promoting these drinks are like, uh, Odwalla and and um, what is it Nature something and they're they're Pepsi and Coke basically bought them and they have more sugar than mostly uh, even a can of Coke or soda which is pretty frightening so I think we really need to, to sort of be careful about what we're eating if you're having green juices look at the bottle if it says you know carbohydrates sugars because you're putting a lot of fruit in there it can have more than a soda so I I think green juices are awesome but that means you know not a lot of fruit or very little or none. So I'll have like, you know, kale, collard, you know, collard, spinach, celery, cucumbers. You can put in, you know, maybe a tiny little apple, ginger, lemon. Those are fine. But when you start getting all these pro juices that are so sugary, they're, they're just as bad. And they may be even worse than we than we think for us. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. Smoothies are better. You can throw in whole foods. So I'll make a, a vegetable smoothie. I have a recipe in my book. But, you know, I put in... 
uh, greens and celery, lemon, uh, avocado. It's creamy and it's it's a great vegetable smoothie to have in the morning. But I think these huge amounts of fruit smoothies with tons of fruit also is just another form of sugar that I worry about. Right. And with the smoothie, it would seem like at least it keeps the fiber. Is that right? And it helps slow down the insulin response? For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, if you, ha- I mean, if you have apple juice, you know, how many apples did it take to get that? Maybe five apples? We have an app. You're not going to eat five apples, right? You're going to be too full. So, and also the same thing with smoothies. If you put the whole fruit in there, you're pulverizing a little bit and it's a little bit uh, better, right? But yeah, still, you don't want to like make that your whole diet. Um, so I want to get practical. So basically we've gone through all these different foods and I want to talk a little bit about weight loss because this, you said 70% of America is overweight and all the recommendations coming out of the government are pretty much just like eat less and move more. And I know you've broken this down in several of your books that I've read over the, the past few years, but basically you say that it's not about how much you eat, but what you eat. So talk about that more. And in light of all that we just talked about, how can people actually like lose weight in today's world? Well, this is a huge problem. We've all been brainwashed to believe that it's calories in, calories out, eat less, exercise more. It's what the government tells us. It's what scientists tell us, nutritionists, doctors. It's what the food industry tells us. And if the food industry is on board, you got to wonder about that. I mean, they created something called the Global Energy Balance Network, which is was a basic front group where they paid scientists, Coca-Cola paid scientists, started this website and basically are telling people it's all about energy balance, all about moderation, that you know, Coca-Cola can be part of a healthy diet as long as it's in moderation. This is just nonsense. The quality of the food you eat matters. And this is not my opinion, but this is just basic biology. When you eat sugar and starch, you increase insulin, it starts a cycle of cravings, fat storage, slows metabolism, and locks the fat in the fat cells. When you eat fat, a low sugar carb diet, it does the opposite. It actually stimulates fat to be released from your fat cells. It cuts your hunger. It speeds your metabolism. Uh, there was just a randomized controlled trial where they gave people uh, unrestricted diet. They could eat as much as they wanted of a high-fat, low-carb diet. And another group, they gave a very calorie-restricted diet, which was low-fat, high-carb, and healthy carbs. And after a year, they found that the people who could eat as much as they want but just ate more fat and less carbs did far better in every way. More weight loss, more blood sugar normalization, better cholesterol. So it's not about the calories. And they've also done studies where they give people exactly the same calories but from let's say 60% carbs, 10% fat or 60% fat, 10% carbs. And they high fat group burned 30, 300 calories more a day which is like running for an hour. So – it's very possible by eating the right food and choosing what to eat, you would do far better than trying to limit calories or count calories, which is impossible anyway. So I think this is one of the biggest myths on the population because it blames the fat person. If you are overweight, it's because you're eating too much and not exercising enough. In other words, you're a lazy glutton and it's your fault, you're fat. Well, that is just so far from the scientific truth, which is why I sort of write about this. And Dr. Ludwig from Harvard is really one of the leading scientists in this area and he's talked about this as well. So it's really, really impressive when you look at the data and we have to change our thinking. There's there's now a study that are being published in the Journal of the American Medical Association showing that, in fact, people who are eating ketogenic diets can reverse diabetes, get off their medication. It's, it's really, really impressive. 
That was actually going to be my next question for you is in light of not eating carbohydrates, what do you think about keto? Because I've experimented with it and cycling it, but my take at least is that I think it's great, but people do it wrong. I think a lot of people think it's like a bacon and pork rind diet and they just eat all the cheese because it's keto. And to me, like keto should be like half green veggies at least. And But I'd love to get your take. What do you think of keto right now? Yeah. Well, I think ketogenic diets have been around for a while. They've been used to treat epilepsy that doesn't respond to medications. But increasingly, it's being looked at as treatment for cancer, for reversing diabetes, for Alzheimer's, for autism, for many, many conditions. It's impressive when you see the data on this. Now, this is not for everybody. Uh, it's, we're talking about a 70% fat diet. Uh, and it's key that you have to eat enough of real food. And it's not about just you know, pounding down the cream. It's really about understanding how to eat a really healthy diet with a lot of good fats. So lots of plant foods lots of vegetables, good quality animal protein, and lots of fats. And you can do it in a healthy way or you can do it in an unhealthy way. And I think a lot of people people do. Yeah, for sure. I think people don't realize too, when you're talking about keto, which could be like up to 60%, even 80% fat, that volume-wise, that's still a small amount of fat compared to the vegetables you can eat on that. Like that doesn't mean 80% of your plate is olive oil. That means you have a ton of vegetables with some olive oil. Exactly. So by, by volume, probably 70% of your diet is plants. And by calories, 70% of your diet is fat, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, okay, let's, I want to talk about what you talk about in the book, which is awesome, which you call the pagan diet, um, which I love because it's not really a diet, it's a philosophy, but I, I love this. It's kind of a joke. It's a spoof, right? It's a spoof on vegan and paleo and the extremism that everybody has. And, you know, listen, if you believe what the paleo folks say and you eat like a vegan, you're going to die. And if you believe what the vegan folks say, if you eat like a paleo person, you're going to die. So they can't both be right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious, like if you could wave a magic wand and have everybody eating a much more healthy diet, what would that look like? Practically speaking, like how would people be eating then? Well, it, I, you know, follow some basic, simple principles. You know, the way I talk about eating is, is I, I could have, a couple of things. One is, uh, in a bigger context, there's like the food, right? What what should I eat? But then there's how it affects everything, right? So I think I just want to share a little bit about that because it's something that nobody's going to disagree with. I mean, these things that I, whether you're paleo or vegan, these principles, I think everybody's on board with. And let me just kind of share with you some of it because it's really not that hard. First thing is, is how do you how do you eat at a high level to to affect the environment around you? Because what you what you're Basically, eating affects not only you, but affects the environment, affects climate, affects the economy, affects pretty much everything. So the first is, you know, avoid processed foods, avoid junk food, obviously refined sugars, carbohydrates, and refined oils. Avoid factory farm animals. Avoid food that contributes to climate change and environmental degradation. Minimizes the use of fossil fuels. Avoid foods that affects the kids' ability to learn or threatens national security because kids are too fat to fight or, or leads to violent behavior and poverty. Nobody's going to argue with any of these principles. Avoid additives, artificial ingredients, hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, GMO. Nobody's going to say, oh, we should be eating more additives and chemicals. We should be eating more factory farm animals. We should be eating more processed food. No, Nobody's going to say that, right? So everybody, everybody will agree on these principles. And the second is, um, you know, more than what we should eat. It's we should be eating whole foods, mostly plants, a low glycemic diet. Nobody agrees that we should be eating a high carb, low fat diet anymore. I mean, there are a few holdouts and a few dinosaurs out there who are still believing this and promoting this, but it's 
It's just overwhelming evidence to the opposite. Healthy fats, a lot of good fats, avocados, virgin olive oil, nuts, seeds, omega-3 fats, some saturated fat. Um, if you're going to eat animal foods, they should be sustainably, humanely raised and harvested. Uh, we should support regenerative agriculture, soil health, water resources, and farm workers' rights. Nobody's going to say, oh, we should, we should be eating food from places where they abuse the farm workers. Like, these are just basic principles that no one's going to disagree with. And then I go into, you know, the principles of what I call the vegan diet, which, again, was kind of a joke. But uh, essentially, it's, it's pretty simple. No one is really going to disagree with this. One, very low glycemic, low diet. Very high in non-starchy, rainbow-colored vegetables. If you're eating fruit, lower glycemic fruit. Uh, if you're eating fats, eat, I mean, eat good quality fats, omega-3 fats, olive oil, nuts and seeds, avocados, those kinds of things. Low and refined vegetable oils that are potentially harmful. Avoid or limit dairy and stick with grass-fed goat or sheep. Eat organic when possible, whole, fresh, even local when possible. If you're going to eat animal foods, make sure they're sustainably and humanely raised and they support regenerative agriculture. Uh, fish, eat low mercury fish from sustainable fisheries and farmed fish that are sustainable and not toxic. Avoid gluten grains for the most part. Moderate uh, moderate amounts of non-gluten grains. Beans, okay, but as a side dish, not six cups of beans a day. Um, slow And eat smaller, lower glycemic beans. And, and avoid all the junk. No pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, hormones, chemicals, additives, preservatives, GMO foods. These are just simple principles that I don't think anybody can disagree with. Yeah, super common sense. And I definitely would encourage everyone to grab your book to get more information. And I want to wrap up with a really practical question that I get a lot. And I'm guessing you might have some great insight, which is how can parents help get kids on board with this way of eating? Because I'm guessing you have people come into the Cleveland Clinic who the child has a health problem and needs to eat this way. And there's probably some resistance there. So any tips for parents to get kids on board? I, I think, you know, it starts young, right? It starts young. So I saw this great YouTube video once of this kid who the first time in his life had sugar, and it was like he just had crack or heroin. Uh, and, and I think the more we can demonstrate in our homes how to eat and cook that's real food, we'll do better. My mom always cooked fresh food. We had a vegetable garden in the back. I used to go in the back and eat from the garden. Those kinds of things make a difference for kids. I had that with my kids, and it was really, really great. And I think it's really important for us to actually look at how do we change this in a way that that makes our health better, that makes the planet better, and that isn't feeding our kids foods that's going to kill them. Uh, I, I don't think we should be having kids' menus. I don't think we should have things in the home that aren't safe. Kids will get into it, and there's peer pressure, but you know, we need to start thinking about how do we change those policies that, that make this uh, into a problem. Exactly. And I think if parents start from the ground up and just don't have that stuff in the house, the kids can't eat it at least at home, which will minimize a lot of the damage. And I think um, there's a lot of moms that are moving in that direction, thanks to people like you who are on the front lines talking about that. And I want to respect your time. I know you're a busy practicing doctor, but thank you so, so much for being here. This is such a fun interview. And again, please, everybody check out his book. It, like I'm sure like all your other books will be amazing. So thank you, Dr. Hyman, for your time. Of course. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope to see you again on the Healthy Moms podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.